Good morning and welcome to another edition of Straight Talking English. We are now on episode 8, we're going to be covering Wordsworth's The Prelude today and it is a bright and early Saturday morning when I'm recording this. For some reason I'm awake early, so what could be better than to talk about a bit of Wordsworth and romanticism? My name's Catherine and I'm going to be talking you through these poems in a very unteacherly way to give you the nuts and bolts that you're going to need for your English Lit exams, both on the anthology and the texts. Let's dive straight into Wordsworth's life. He was born in 1770. He was raised up in Cumbria in the Lake District. He described it as a pure communion with nature. Think about the word communion, it's usually religious. He has this almost holy veneration for nature and he spent a lot of time outdoors, apparently unsupervised. Bit worried to be honest if a parent of my students said that to me today. Main things that he did in his early life which may have informed his poetry, the French Revolution. He had a lot of sympathy for the revolutionaries and was actually over in France during the revolution. But the thing that held him back from getting fully involved in the French Revolution was because he loved the British monarchy so much. He was very, very interested in philosophy and a lot of the fashionable philosophical ideas, a very like rational view of what the world can be, clashed with his own understanding of nature and our place in it. His way was a lot more soft, a lot more emotional. I will do a disclaimer here of course, uh, I had to read the full 12 chapters of the prelude for my A-levels back in the day and as a result I am not a fan of words worth. Oh my gosh, so the extract from the prelude is about one page and the whole thing is about a hundred pages long. It is a nightmare. But back on his philosophy, he had a bit of a weird one to be honest. I've paraphrased it a bit but get your head around this. Before we're born, we're in this perfect ideal world where we're at one with nature. But as we all do, we are born. Children remember their time in this perfect world and that's why they want to be in nature so much. But this fades and as we grow up our love of nature lessens. If we remember our childhood it makes us more pure and we can understand nature better. As an adult if we look at it as a metaphor we can compensate for this lost connection and get ourselves back into this state of a closer communion with nature. Well make of that what you will. But that is what Wordsworth thought. About 1795, Wordsworth and his sister moved permanently to the Lake District. His neighbour was Samuel Coleridge, another really cool poet, and he wrote this book called Lyrical Ballads, which was his landmark. Some people would argue it's a landmark of poetry as a whole, but it's definitely the peak of Wordsworth's career. His wife then moved in with him and his sister. I got some questions, as ever. I mean, I love my sister, but if I got married, I would not want her really to be sticking around. Wordsworth continued in this fashion until 1880. At the end of his life he was basically poncing around the Lake District pretending he was the lord of the manor and living somewhat of a semi-aristocratic life since he got this big house. And Lord Byron, definitely my favourite, just said he was a massive sellout. It's like you claimed that you were revolutionary once and now you're acting like you're an aristocrat. Psh. 
The reason that lyrical ballads were such a landmark, though, is because it's emotional. I've said before that pre-romantics, poetry was essentially expression within a very strict set of rules, and the romantics changed all that. Poetry became a way to express an emotion. And Wordsworth said his poetry can be summed up in the phrase, an emotion recollected in a state of tranquility. So you're calm, you remember how you felt at a certain time, you give in to this emotion when you're writing, and the emotion stays in the poem. Right, fair enough, fair enough. It was all about focusing on the feeling and the beauty of a single moment. It was about simplicity as opposed to formality. So it comes across as being this, like, I don't know if you know the Japanese shop Muji, but this quite, like, minimalist, emotional, calm way of seeing the world that sums up Wordsworth. As a story, we know the story in this poem is something like boy goes to lake, boy steals boat, boy gets scared of mountain, boy has nightmares, realises that nature is all-knowing and powerful. So we talk about the power and the conflict in this cluster. Power is shifting between himself and nature. At the start, he's active. He has his act of stealth. He unloosed the boat's chain. He fixed his view. But the second he notices this mountain, this figure, this Godzilla type thing he encounters in the Lake District, it has control. It's the conflict between man and nature for control of the world around them. Starts off very, very calm, that tranquility that he's looking for, the beauty of nature as he's out trying to rob something. Nature's personified from the very start. One summer evening, in brackets, led by her. <coughs> it is personification. Nature is leading him to this point. And the brackets make the information added neutral. Just a matter of fact. I was led here by nature. This small circles glitter. Littering. Oh, it's precious, it's magical, sparkling. Oh, that's lovely as well. It's so sweet. We've got the repetition of and throughout the poem and it gives us this breathless pace. Either that he is just dumbstruck by the beauty of what is around him or that he has this panic later and he's just out of breath everywhere. Things to notice as well, just absolutely right from the start. We've got iambic pentameter. Again, it's come up in so many of our poems. One summer evening led by her, I found a little boat tied to a willow tree. It's Shakespeare's rhythm. It represents the beating of a human heart and that's his heart beating in tune with nature's. It's really pretty but it has got this blank verse. It's the rejection of the rules of poetry that says you have to have a rhyme scheme, you have to have stanzas and he's rejected that. He said no I'm gonna just have blank verse, nothing rhymes, just going with it. It could represent the fact he's outside the rules of society when he's doing this and the rules don't apply to him anymore. We've also got the enjambment 
meant the carrying on of a sentence as it flows over a line without necessarily a break. Most important word on what I just said is flow. It represents something flowing. It could be the water flowing around him, could be time flowing, could be the power of nature flowing through him like the force in Star Wars, or it could be this exchange of power. I'm not quite sure what it represents. Line 17 to 20, we've got the shift again. He realises there's a boundary, the utmost boundary, and he starts to enjoy himself a little bit more. She was an elfin pinnace. Well, literally elfin, like an elf, pinnace, medieval word for boat. And I lustily, I dipped my oars in the silent lake. Lustily, um could very much be a mental or physical desire. I only learnt this last week. In some ways, this can be seen as a sexual metaphor. Again, I'm going to try and describe this as politely as I can. Think of the shape of a boat and think of the shape of a female anatomy and think about the fact he's saying it lustily. He's almost got this physical relationship with nature and that is a little bit gross to be honest it is a little bit weird thinking that he is getting too excited by being out in nature but it's, he is a young boy he is oh, I don't know how old he's supposed to be in this but he's definitely at a, a developing stage of his life there's nothing that's surprising. We've got this nice simile, like a swan. Swans are regal, swans are calm, but the foreshadowing, what's the thing about swans? We can't see their legs flapping and flipping away below the surface. So even though everything seems calm and nice, there may well be something going on underneath that we aren't aware of. Semicolons are coming in as well. All the semicolons representing ideas which are intrinsically linked. When we're writing, we can use them in place of a conjunction, but it does represent things that have either a cause and effect or you can't understand one without the other. Some kind of essential link between the ideas. Again, it could show the flow of his story, or it could show that everything in the world is linked. But then... ba ba bum From behind that craggy steep till then, the horizon's bound, a huge peak, black and huge, as if with voluntary power instinct upreared its head. I struck and struck again, and growing stiff in stature, oh my god, no, it did actually say still, my bad, I was expecting uh, another dodgy comment from him, I do apologise. Growing still in stature, the grim shape towered up between me and the stars, and still, for so it seemed, with a purpose of its own, a measured motion like a living thing strode after me. Oh no, nature that was so friendly, and leading him, that he may have had a slightly inappropriate attachment to the magical and glittering is actually mysterious and huge and dangerous. It's voluntarily trying to scare him. The nature is choosing to impress its power on him. It's doing it instinctively with its power instinct. I kind of see it almost as an animal or something that chooses to do things but is not necessarily sentient. Think about Grimm. 
Grim Reaper, only really used in like a funeral death setting. It's immediately reminding him that nature is so dangerous that he could die. There's the alliteration in measured moment. He is creating this sense of urgency. Suddenly, I have to escape. And it's striding after him. It's quick. It's big. It's not it's not taking its time. It's just getting there as quick as it can. It makes him seem like he's the prey and he's being chased. There's the repetition of huge, a huge peak, black and huge. Repetition showing the main idea of this section. The immense size of nature. Oh my gosh, this thing is... Well, he just keeps having to say huge. One interpretation is that this actually represents his spiritual journey. So he starts off all nice and calm. He's engaging on this journey. He gets a problem. And then he's forced to reconsider where his spirituality lies. I mean, anyone who's on any kind of self-improvement journey will have setbacks. And it's argued that this is representing the setback on this almost journey to enlightenment, this journey on his communion to nature. But he gets home and it's very, very clear that he is no longer in charge. The power has completely shifted. He's in a grave and serious mood Again, grave is linking to, linking to grim. And his brain worked with a dim and undetermined sense of unknown modes of being. Over my thoughts there hung a darkness. Nature is one of these unknown modes of being. It's beyond our knowledge. Perhaps again linking to this idea of nature as divine. Because it is beyond human comprehension, according to Wordsworth. We've got the metaphor, over my thoughts there hung a darkness. Nature's now controlling what he thinks about. He's got the repetition of no familiar shapes, no pleasant images, no colours of green fields. There is just this nothingness. Now he's realised that he cannot really understand nature. He cannot get back to the state of perfect oneness that Wordsworth believed he could. Of course, this is semi-autobiographical. The point of a prelude is that it comes at the start of something, kind of like the prologue in Romeo and Juliet. This is the prelude to his adult life and it's supposed to be his account of being a young man and having these adventures. So we can see this as a coming of age story where he finally begins to grow up and realises that he cannot be the same with nature. Now he's older. They do not live like living men. Repetition, got our simile. He's making sure we can understand this through the comparison created by a simile. And they move slowly through the mind by day and were a trouble to my dreams. They are doing something to him with the preposition my, the things that belong to him are now passive. And these strange beings representing nature are now active. So it is his realisation that the world is not all nice and it was this act of stealing the boat that opened his eyes to it really nice way into this poem if you can't be bothered or everything I've said has gone over your head or you're like I don't have any notes colour imagery we've got the glittering the stars it's 
sparkly. Then with that turn, it's black, it's grim, it's dark. The change between the light and the dark and the way the colours are described are a really nice way into this poem. Obviously, we want partners. Think about nature versus man. Could well do a nice one with Ozymandias. The lone level sands stretch far away. Because ultimately it's nature that has conquered Ozymandias rather than a human. Storm on the island as well. The enemy that they are facing is in some ways the storm. When I come on to this one, I'm going to tell you why it might not be the storm. But for now we'll say the image of nature versus man. We could also have it as poems that have this pivotal moment in the middle, this volta, this event where something changes everything. Kamikaze, where he sees the boats and the big old tuna outside of his window. Bayonet charge, where he pauses and the cold clockwork reminds him that everything's been put in motion and he doesn't matter. We could argue again exposure with the colours, the grey, the grim, like the faded nature of the colour imagery. We could go for a total opposite, to be honest. We could do poppies, because the colours are very bright. We could do Blake's realisation in London. It's focusing on this moment. If you can make something out of that, good on you. My reaction is, after reading this, again, I can appreciate it a bit more, but I still don't like Wordsworth. I like my poets that have a bit of fire in them, that have a bit of anger, a bit of something happening, or a sense of the dramatic. And Wordsworth tranquility, it's just not really doing it for me, unfortunately. You are allowed to not like it. You can't just say, well, I don't like it because it's a poem. But if you've engaged with it and your conclusion is, I don't like this, that's a perfectly fine conclusion to reach. We don't like things all of the time. Things I do kind of like and also hate at the same time is the next poem, which is going to be the sonnet from Love and Relationships half which I believe is can't remember the name Sonnet 29 I think of thee it's a natural pairing with some of Browning's because Elizabeth Barrett Browning is his missus so have a lovely lovely day I hope you enjoy your weekend and I will return shortly with Sonnet 29 have a lovely day annotating